Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, the podcast designed to simplify the complex job of managing and leading people. And never has it been any more complex and challenging than it is today. Our goal with every podcast is to share at least one proven business practice that will help you build a more sustainable, profitable, and purpose-driven company. Our guest today, if there is a most interesting man that I've not yet had dinner with and enjoyed a fine glass of wine or my favorite beverage over a fine meal, it's this gentleman we're about to talk to. I find him extremely fascinating. Characteristics I believe he has from the interactions that we've had together is one, he's very curious. He's scary smart. He is a gentleman able to communicate exceptionally well and influence without arousing resentment unnecessarily in others. I just, I want to get to know him even better and hopefully we'll do that today and you'll join me. Please welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, my audience, Mr. Jeff Berkowitz. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Good. I I would say I'm excited to be here, but I don't know how I can live up to that introduction. (laughs) Very easily. You're not going to have any trouble doing that. Explain for the audience exactly what your company Delve is and does. That's a, it's a really interesting business that you have. So we're, we are a competitive intelligence firm that specifically focuses on the political and reputational risks focus that companies and industries have to navigate to achieve their, their business and policy objectives. So if you boil that down to ultimately, are you, are you a risk mitigation business for most organizations? Are you a way to minimize risk or are you somebody who helps them leverage something to to get something a better result than the otherwise would. I'm I'm curious about how you position yourself. Both of those things, you know, it's uh as much as we'd love for folks to call us on the front end so that we can help them uh, avoid risk, uh you know, we're we're just as often getting called on the other side of it where they've they found themselves in the midst of that risk or challenge. You know, so we really we we can help navigate and mitigate that risk as well as you know also leverage our insights to change the outcome for the better for their organizations, whether it's legislative issue, a regulatory issue, uh, an issue of public scrutiny, permitting rate or approval issue, yep. any place where they're they're fa- facing government and other stakeholders. If if I had a client who said, yeah, I understand there's lobbying and there's these different political entities that I probably should have some plan for how I'm going to deal with because they might disrupt our business, but I don't know how to do it and it's going to be so expensive and I don't want to, I don't have to have a lobbyist for gosh sakes. What, what would you say to somebody who would, in my opinion, want to put their head in the sand, you know, and, and and not think about that kind of possibility for their organization? So that's a great question. A question reminds me of a half, half joking, half serious uh, comment my lawyer often makes, which is you need to stop calling me before you do things because it'll make a lot more money if you just go do them the wrong way. 
That makes a lot of sense. I love the analogy. So, so the only, you know, lobbyists and public affairs and, and uh, we're only really expensive when you call us and you're already in the middle of the trouble. You know, a dime of, of crisis prevention can prevent a dollar of crisis mitigation and management. So, I, you know, I think any, any good lobbyist, any good public affairs professional will want to help you understand the risks ahead of time and, and yep. get brought in earlier. I think the earlier you engage them and understand those stakeholders that are going to impact your ability to operate and achieve your business objectives, one, you're going to save a bunch of money by spending spending some money up front. And two, you're going to be able to achieve your objective more easily. And three, you're not going to have the reputational harm and, and issues that you would have if you you take the other approach. You and I met, what, four years ago, give or take three, three to four years ago? Something like that. Whenever, the, whenever we were down at Pinehurst. Yeah. Yeah, we had a workshop down there, and you were one of our guests and attended there. And uh, that was that was the first time I really, you know, got to really think about the risks that you run. I guess you'd call it the risk you would run, and not thinking that you have to worry about the political consequences, the public opinion consequences of your policies for how you operate your business. And I would tell you that that anybody, I've been saying essentially to all my clients since we first met, Jeff, that if you if you don't have some strategy about how you're going to, you know, intentional decisions about what you think about that, the the potential negative downside to your organization is so high in today's environment. And uh, you can be made, your, your organization can be very easily made a, a bad actor despite all your best work and best efforts, literally overnight. So your business is really an organization that helps prevent that from happening, especially the, the more advanced notice you have, the more opportunity to get to work on that proactively as opposed to reactively, I think the better. But enough about Delve right now. I want to talk more about Jeff Berkowitz. So we've, we've, we've talked about the organization. You know, now I looked at your background on LinkedIn because, you know, you and I've talked, but I really didn't know that much about you. And it became pretty clear to me you were an entrepreneur early on. I'm wondering, do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur? First of all, do you even think of yourself that way? But then secondly, if you do, when did you come to that realization you were an entrepreneur? You know, so uh, even growing up, I, you know, I was entrepreneurial, you know, a lot of, you know, forget paper routes, you know, I figured out how to, you know, do HTML coding and was doing, uh, you know, setting up websites in the, you know, back in the 90s for fo- for folks and also even teaching my my parents, friends how to use their computers and things like that. Okay. You know, but I, I, I took a, career-wise, took a pretty traditional path in politics and government. But campaign campaigns politics are is pretty entrepreneurial. You literally you all show up one day about nine months or twelve months before an election. Nobody's worked at the organization before. You have no money yet. You're rolling the desks in and plugging the phones in, and and you create an entire organization all to achieve an objective on one day, and then you all and then you shut the whole thing down. Yeah, definitely a finite organization. Right, it's finite. You, it, it's a definite start and an end. It's a very finite organization. You have to be very comfortable with risk and uncertainty for your career, which which is well suited to entrepreneurial ventures. You know, because you 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 know that even if you win on election day, that you don't have a job after the day the next day. You have to go figure it out. 
when I was younger, I loved the idea that every two years I got to reinvent what I was going to do every day for money. At some point, that gets old. Yeah, but but I I can appreciate the fact that you were okay with that whole premise of that this wasn't a a linear kind of a environment you were operating in, and you were okay with it starting and stopping, and then going and finding the next opportunity thereafter. One of the things I've learned at about age 40, and some of my, I probably have said this before in other podcasts, I came to the conclusion I was a bad employee. I was not meant to be employed by others. I I struggled when I had to work within that, that framework. Did you ever think of yourself as being either a good or a bad employee or that you were not meant to work for others? Did that ever occur to you? You know, I'm I'm natural. My personal, I'm naturally a rule follower as long as in policy enforcer as long as they all make sense. When they don't make sense, then I then I tend not to be very good at following them. And I would also say, I was never I was very good at being in a mission driven organization where everybody knew who was in charge, and everybody was focused on the mission. And so there are times in my career where I was a great employee, and we were all fight, okay. you know, fighting together. And I, I would say there are other times where I was in in jobs where there was a lot of internal politics, and people were busy you know, shooting at each other as opposed to shooting at the target we were all supposed to be aiming at. And uh, I was a very bad employee in those kinds of situations. <laughs> well, I, I assume there's a point at which you went, I'm smarter than most of these people I'm working for. I might as well just do it for myself. Is, is that kind of what happened? So I, I was not fortunate enough to come to a realization myself. I was working for a, a very organizationally unhealthy place, a uh, national political organization. And I'd worked at it in previous cycles, but it had a new leader who was, he was in it for himself and the people that he surrounded himself were, and I was there for the mission and and that didn't make for a good mix. And so I, you know, after a long succession of, of senior staff were summarily dismissed for the chairman's incompetence, my turn came and, and I, you know, was relieved to find something new to do. And I didn't really have a plan because I was playing staying there through the election cycle and then going on to the next thing. But people started calling and they they needed they needed research, they needed help with this or that. And next thing I, you know, I was like, well, I'll do this until I find a real job, find my next real job. And um, never really found that real job. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just kept doing this and it, you know, the organization kind of grew naturally. You know, we were lucky that the clients preceded the firm. And as it got more than I could handle, started adding people. And after a couple of years, you know, realized that, you know, Rather than just subbing work out, you know, I could employ these people full time and realize I started a business, yep. sought help when the therapy didn't work. <laughs> I, you know, I started figuring out what did that, what does that mean to really grow a business? And, you yeah. know, I've been popular in government. I didn't know anything about the, the, about business except, you know, that they've funded our operations through taxes. Yeah. Yeah. You're a professional services organization. You've got a, a group of, very bright, smart people, and their job is to research your competitor or the competitors of your clients to recognize legal and and social threats that could be a part of whatever is going on for that company's business. So you got these these really bright, young, talented people. What's what do you find is the biggest challenge in managing and leading those kinds of folks? Is it one thing, or is it really unique to each individual? You know, I think the I think the the challenge is 
you know, we, we do a really good job of focusing on hiring for our values, you know, and, and one of our big values is digging deeper. And so, you know, folks that come to the organization are very self-motivated. You know, they have a real good desire to dig into to issues. So I think one of the big challenges is, is sort of pulling them back and, and keeping them from burning out too quickly. Uh, you know, we hire a lot of young people. Most of them come in through our training program that we've built, a three-month associate program. And so we, we give them all of these skills. Then it's really a quite, you know, it's an issue of making sure that they under, you know, these days, young, you know, young folks don't stay with organizations for a long time. You know, they right. tend to bounce from different ones. So it's always, you know, you know I think the biggest challenge is, is keeping their interest and yep. keeping their energy and helping them see the, the path for growth within the organization as opposed to looking outside of it. You've heard, like I have, that there's a difference in this millennial group of, of, of employees versus the uh, the Gen Xers, the Gen Ys uh, that have preceded them. What what's your your sense? Are they hard hardworking? Are they able to be as effective? Uh, do, do you do you sense that they don't have a work ethic or not? I, I mean, the ones that we hire do. But if you don't have a work ethic, you're not making it through our hiring process because we make you work in it. You know, we we have a a long intentionally long, you know sort of long hiring process you know and so we sometimes lose people that probably would be good for us but they don't have the the patience or they get picked up by somebody else that that makes more rash decisions but it also means that we rarely hire somebody that we regret hiring. Yeah, in, in that regard, could you could you give us some example of, of of how much rigor you bring to that? So so if if, yeah. if how would you make me work to get hired by you? Sure. So, so when you, when you come to our application site, in addition to resume and the basic info, we ask for you know four key questions. We follow the the WHO method from Jeff Smart. Yeah, you know, the, it's a great book called WHO. W H O. Really highly recommend it. You know, we follow that pretty rigorously, and so there's a phone screener. So, uh, set of questions that he's got in there that we ask. You know, it's. Uh, Essentially, when the first sort of gate is how do you you know we ask them where do you how do you see this position you're applying for helping you know, further in your career because we kind of want to see do they understand our organization do they and how do they see it helping them so that we okay. can make sure there's an alignment there yeah makes then sense. we ask what kind of things they like doing you know and they, these are you know they're typing these on a computer you know, so short short paragraphs so some people go longer. You know what kind of things have they done in their career they don't like as much or they aren't aren't as good at, and then what kind of challenges do they anticipate if they are hired for this role? Which is always fascinating because there's always the person that wants to be brash and say, "I don't see any challenges." I'm like, "You're not, you know, uh, as you know, you know, Patrick Lencioni, hum, humble, hum, humble, hungry, and smart." You know, is like, right. "Thank you for for letting us know which are, which of those you don't match." Right off the bat, so so that's kind of that comes in, and we look at those, and then we'll do a phone screener where our our you know recruiter will kind of talk, tell them a little bit more about the company, and kind of sort of feel them out, see if they'll be a cultural fit. If that conversation goes well, then they'll do a, a raw what we call a raw skills assessment. We'll give them a research assignment, something we've already researched, so we know what they ought to find. 
So we want to see what they, and we don't give them a lot of direction on where to look or what to include or what kind of, even what kind of format to put it in. And then our team will actually, we blind grade those. So we get them anonymously and we'll score them across spelling, grammar, how they organize it. Did they cite their information? Analysis on target. Did they find all the stuff they should? Because that tells us, we think that aligns well with our four core values of dig deeper, details matter, work smart, never stop learning. So that it's only after that that they get a in-person or these days video interview. And that we go through the, the in-depth sort of top grading style interview with them. We want to know everything about every position they've had, how they did in school, what they did well, what they didn't do well, who they work for, or what would those people say about them? We really want to make sure that the person's going to be aligned because we're going to, most of our hires are going to our associate program. We're going to invest three months of our time and energy teaching them yeah. to be the best research analyst out there. Start to finish, Jeff, how long typically does this process take from for me to go through? It can be six to eight weeks. Okay. All right. And, and so it's not quick and it's obviously really a lot of hurdles to, to cross or to get over for me to, to make it. How many people have made it through this process and you've gone, you know, what percent of the people that you hire have you gone? That was still a mistake. We should not have hired her or him. You know, there's always, there's always some, I mean, it's pretty yeah. low percent, but probably 10 or 10 or 15%. You know, and and usually usually it's because there was a shiny object in their resume that that really yep. excited us and it yep. made us ignore the the red flags that were right in front of us. And we've gotten better at that as an organization. You know, we've gone from I used to be the harshest grader and judger in these to I'm usually the nicest uh, among the the senior staff doing the hiring. So, you know, I think because most. Most of our hires are into our associate program. That's anywhere from, you know, we do usually three associate classes a year and it's two to four per class. So that's okay. anywhere from six to 12 folks uh, a year. And I would say, you know, in any given class, we'll usually take 50 to 75%. We'll get asked to be to join the team as analysts at the end of it. I think there are people listening right now who are probably pretty envious of the machine that you're building for talent to to allow you to continue to grow without really being held hostage by anybody. That's a that's a nice place to be. Yeah, we just decided to lean into, you know, one of the, you know, I came from a, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I came from a, a frustrating situation in my last, you know, official job where I didn't think people were being treated right and the and people weren't mission focused and it was a lot of internal politics rather than working together. And, you know, I wanted to build the kind of place that people, you know, were, you know, felt like as long as they were with us, whether they were with us for a year or two, or they were with us for the majority of their career, that they were growing and learning something and coming out the other side better for it. When, when you and I met, there were some conversations during that session about organizational health and clearly you had some negative experiences in, a, in an organization who had a lack of organizational health. So when did you first really say, I, I want to understand what it is and, and learn about it? What, what was the, how long ago did you start making that a part of the way you wanted to operate? So I think in, instinctually, I didn't know the, the fun terms and concepts, but I, instinctually from the get-go, you know, from the beginning, 
you know, we always were, you know, we always allowed flexible telecommuting, not because I thought that'd be some cool perk, but because I cared about the results people were, were achieving. Right. Rather than you were at the desk at 8 a.m. and you were there until 7, 6 p.m. or whatever. I wanted, you know, I don't, I didn't care where, where you were working or how you were getting it done as long as it was getting done. You right. know, why should I care? Right. And, you know, so I think starting from that, pre- the premise of we wanted a flexible organization that could be, I've been in a lot of jobs where you were, you were stuck there for many long hours, whether you need to be there or not. Right. Know, in politics and government, it was about show, you know, be there before the boss and, and those sorts of things. And I wanted an organization that was focused on what mattered. And so I think that there was that focus. And, and then we, we do want to invest a lot in the, the people that are there and, and we want it to be a good place that they enjoy. So, you know, I stumbled upon, I was, I was trying to, trying to remember as I was preparing for this, how I stumbled upon, but I, I stumbled upon some of Patrick Lencioni's books and, 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 you know, the rest of the entrepreneurial mafia that's out there with lots of great, <laughs> you know, great ideas. I love that. I, I love that descriptor, entrepreneurial mafia. That, that is a good descriptor. They're out there. They're very good at what they do. And, and I've, you know, bought a lot of their books, but you're really learning these concepts of, of how to engage, you know, engage folks. You know, I'm a, re- I'm a researcher at heart, you know, so I, I kind of tackled being a business owner in that way of, you know, most yep. of the problem, if I can make the organization effective, then the people in it can figure out how to, you know, drive our success, you know, for the long term. Because if I'm the one sort of figuring it all out constantly, then then the organization's never going to be able to grow and scale. Can you put a, a financial value on organizational health for your business? Well, I mean, just think about the cost of replacing employees alone. I mean, don't don't even think about all the other pieces of the puzzle, but just that one piece, and think about what I just described about how what it takes for us to replace somebody. You know, six to eight weeks. Yep. Of, a, of an application process, then you hire the person, and you know, for us, it really is a three three months to get that person to the point where they're really an analyst, and probably another three months before they're really successful on their own. You know, without a lot of handholding. Think about all the staff time oh, yeah. and cost that went to that. I mean, this is it, it. You know, keeping people is is a, a huge and important thing, and organizational health is is about that. You know, also are we're in a, a very niche business in a very small town of Washington, you know, people talk and, and, you know, as our, as our folks leave and go to other organizations, we want them to spread the word and we want people to take note. You know, we, one of our, one of our VPs now was, was actually one of our client organizations. And she saw in our research and the way that we approach things, how different we were from the other places. Yeah. And she's like, I want to work there when this cycle is done. Very cool. Very cool. Now, you work with both political campaigns, political clients, if you will, and I assume mostly for-profit entities or maybe maybe some not-for-profits as well. But is there a particular kind of client you prefer working with? Other than some legacy clients, we don't do much political work anymore. We okay. mostly work with companies and associations. And the reason why is what we found we're best at is you know, we didn't like, you know, with a, with a political campaign, you're, you're generally going to produce a research report or set of reports for them. You're going to hand it off and wish them best of luck in the campaign. Right. 
Well, we really, we wanted to feel invested in our client's success for the long term. And there is no long term in a political campaign. (laughs) Whereas companies have these big challenges and there really is a need. And so for us, the ideal client is a company or association that recognizes that they have current or, or potential public affairs challenges that they need to navigate. They know that being better informed and have a better understanding of those challenges will help them. And they've got the apparatus around them, you know, public affairs professionals, lobbyists, both internally or externally, that know how to use the insights that we turn, you know, can turn around, you know, can turn up for them. Yeah. Uh, so those are kind of the three things we look for in a client, you know, that really wants that long-term partner to really help them stay ahead of the curve and, and protect their interests. Well, I tell you what, it seems like such a fascinating business. And as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about, I would be scared to death to see what you guys could come up with about me. Uh, it's just <laughs> frightening and, and knowing how much stuff is out there and, and, and available if you just know where to go find it. Let's get towards the end of our time here and, and do what we always do, Jeff. And I, I warned you I was going to be asking this question. So we promise our, our audience that we're going to give them some idea that you have based upon your personal experience about how to run a more successful and sustainable business, one that can not just survive, but thrive. What would you, what would you tell another CEO or business owner or president of of an organization? If there's only one thing that you, you can do to be successful or run a better business, what would that be from your point of view? So I think the most important thing is core values. I, at the time when when my executive coach kind of suggested that we should think about it, I was like, yeah, that's an important thing. And it's good to, to sort of think through over time, those, those core values, which hey, we've modified how we say it here and there. But for the past five or six years, they've been those core values have really remained true, true for us. It's been the most important guiding principles that we have. And I think right now is as companies are looking out at this landscape and, you know, the social issue activism and, and the, the, you know, communities under, you know, strain and duress, and they want to engage in helpful and productive ways. The most important thing is to go back to those, those core values and organizations that are not using that as a marketing exercise or a branding exercise, but are really living them are going to be much better off in this kind of a, an environment of scrutiny than those that, that don't take those values seriously. He's Jeff Berkowitz. The organization is Delve and they're a DC based organization. Jeff, if people want to know more about what your organization does and just the industry in general in which you, you participate and, and do your work, how would they best reach you? So you can go to our website, delvdc.com, D-E-L-V-D-C.com. Although I encourage you to wait a few weeks because we're in the midst of a, a redesign so that it'll all be better. But that's the best way. And you can sign up. We do a newsletter on, a, on about a weekly basis. We'll put out a, an analysis of, of some of the issues that we're seeing with different industries and, and political trends that we think people ought to be thinking about. I get the I get your uh, your newsletter and I find it very interesting reading and and uh, thought provoking at, at a minimum it it makes you think about gee I wonder what 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 this could mean for my clients and I I think it's a 
it's well worth the time for people to read. So I would highly recommend it. Jeff, thank you for being uh, on our podcast. I want to have you back again and maybe talk about specific issues and and what you would recommend to people based upon that. I think my guess is there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to know that. So hopefully they'll come back and join us again. Thanks for being on the Ed Epley Experience, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.